Welcome to the Principled Podcast, brought to you by LRN. The Principled Podcast brings together the collective wisdom on ethics, business and compliance, transformative stories of leadership, and inspiring workplace culture. Listen in to discover valuable strategies from our community of business leaders and workplace changemakers. How are boards of directors of major companies coping in 2021 with the increasing expectations from so many stakeholders? How are boards equipping themselves to meet the challenges of overseeing large global organizations? Hello, and welcome to another special episode of the Principled Podcast, where we continue our conversations about the critical role of boards in shaping ethical corporate culture. I'm your guest host, Marsha Urshagi Haynes, a partner at Tapestry Networks. And today I'm pleased to be joined by Don Cornwell, an accomplished corporate leader who currently sits on the boards of AIG, Natura and Company, and Viatris. Don, thank you for coming on the Principal Podcast. Marsha, thanks for the invitation. I look forward to our conversation. Excellent. So, Don, let's share with listeners a little bit. You've had a very unique background from your early career at Goldman Sachs to founding and leading Granite Broadcasting, which at its peak was the largest African-American controlled television broadcasting company in America. You've continued to lead a distinguished career of service on both corporate and nonprofit boards. Could you tell our listeners just a little bit more about your amazing journey? Well, I've done a lot of moving around for a kid who was born in segregated Oklahoma in 1948. My family moved to the Pacific Northwest when I was five, so they could, frankly, continue their careers as educators. And so I lived in Tacoma, Washington, until I graduated high school in 1965, then left to attend Occidental College in Los Angeles, followed immediately by a move to Boston to attend Harvard Business School, and from there off to New York to join a considerably smaller Goldman Sachs. Um, as you know, I left Goldman Sachs in 1988 uh, after 17 years and started a business. You've referenced it, Granite Broadcasting Corporation, and we built that for 20 years, and then I left the company and uh, essentially went into so-called retirement, which I've failed at miserably and have continued to serve on corporate boards. Uh, you didn't mention, I have to mention Pfizer and, and Avon uh, and CVS. I've been very proud of my association with all three of those companies. So I wouldn't want to pass that. Well, you, you mentioned um, your journey kind of with Goldman Sachs. You had joined their investment banking department in the early 70s. And I actually was reflecting on, on that fantastic interview with Bloomberg, uh, the profile with you and uh, your son last year. It was your story is very pioneering for African-Americans working on Wall Street. As you look back on that experience, you know, what are some of your observations on, on diversity on Wall Street and um, essentially the being the only one in the room. Has there really been progress? So I did the interview, the Bloomberg interview with my son, because I thought it provided a context of experience by you know, African-American professionals over a significant period of time. I started at Goldman Sachs in 1971, and he joined after, I should say, after I graduated from Harvard Business School, and he joined Morgan Stanley in 19. 19- 
98, after he graduated from, uh, from, from Stanford Business School. Um, I um, am shameless about promoting the article, so if any of your listeners have an interest, uh, they should check it out. On your question, so I would say the industry is making what I call directionally correct movement. Uh, that's a good thing. But I guess I'm at an age in life where I can say that I think the progress is too slow and I think it's not deep enough. Um, and so in, in making that comment, I, I can point to some really terrific success stories at very various financial firms. And, and, and by financial firms, I'm incorporating everything from banks and insurance companies to you know the typical Wall Street firms that you think about. But in, in thinking about those success stories, uh, I'm hard-pressed to find what I would call an adequate pipeline of aspiring and qualified young professionals uh, available for the succession planning of the future. I've found in my career that when you build a pipeline, um, and that's something that Pfizer talks about a lot, uh, but when you build a pipeline of talent, the issues that we're discussing become somewhat moot. However, when you don't have a pool of talent, you then find yourself scrambling to, uh, and I put quotes around the word, improve uh, from a very unimpressive baseline. And frankly, in this day and age, that does not go unnoticed by shareholders and stakeholders and, and, and society. So I guess I would give uh, the industry a a mixed grade. I, I think it's getting better. I think that there are some great success stories that I read about or know about, uh, but mo much more work to be done. You know, speaking of that, I actually read uh, another article or a derivative article um, that, and I read a quote here that said, Wall Street has a problem with Black excellence. And, you know, most super successful people in Wall Street are just excellent at what they do and how they got there. Um, however, when someone is excellent as a, an African-American, it is not embraced. Would you, how, how does that sort of land with you or resonate with you? Well, it's an interesting observation. I, I don't know where it comes from. I, I think I would, I would sort of turn it just a little bit to say that I felt in my time that the process of growing in a career, no matter who you are, requires, uh, in effect, what I would describe as someone who wants, uh, who intentionally wants to see success. So the observation, to be candid, that I've made about the financial community, I think is a problem across industry and the country. Uh, I think we simply have not done enough to hire, encourage, and retain young people of color or women in general industry. I, um, I, I, I think that we leave a lot of talent behind. We're getting better, but we leave a lot of talent behind. So when I talk about, I have a theme of being intentional about a success experience, I can certainly say that each and every one of the success stories that get spoken about a lot, people like Ken Chenault and Ken Frazier, uh, just to name a few, and I can, I can name you know, many, many others, uh, that they can point to those moments in their careers where they were given a helping nudge uh, along the way. And, and, and so I, I'm sort of simple-minded about it, which is, that if people in power want to see success in that regard, they have to be intentional about it. It has to be something that's on their mind. They have to insist on it. And quite frankly, when decisions, tough decisions have to be made as to whether somebody is performing uh, or not, they have to be willing you know, and unafraid to, to call it because, as I said, everybody isn't going to make the cut, but it's great if people can feel comfortable 
that they have that opportunity. In the Bloomberg interview, and I hope you don't mind my going on at, at, at length here a little bit, but this is this is one of my favorite topics. <laughs> you know, I spoke about intentional sponsorship. That's 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 my theme, and and I talked I spoke about it in context of senior managers. I referenced a, a fellow that I called my very best boss ever. Uh, he has unfortunately passed away. His widow read the interview and called me and was like quite amazed <laughs> at how I felt about this. And, uh, and I think she, she understood things that I had said to her over the years about how important he had been to my life and my family's life in, in terms of my own success. So I always say that during that eight-year period when I had his sponsorship within Goldman Sachs, and by the way, he wasn't necessarily a great guy. I've had people contact me after the interview and say, well, he wasn't very nice to me. And, and so I get that. But I do know that once he asked me to join his team, then I became part of the team and he became my advocate. And that was the best period of my career at Goldman Sachs. And quite frankly, my worst periods were when I didn't have that guidance. I think, you know, and I hope you'll let me go on just a little bit longer, but I think that, that as a country, we're not maximizing our human capital. We see that every day as we work our way through the pandemic. I mean, think about it. Uh, human capital, with a bit of help from our global partners, came up with multiple ways to stop the coronavirus, okay? I mean, that's like amazing, okay, if you think about it. I mean, we, we're, we're all somewhat concerned these days about the continuation of variants and issues about whether you get a boost, et cetera. But the facts are is that we found a way in a very, very short period of time to bring a halt to this really vicious virus. And so that's the wonder. On the other hand, we are also picking up the newspaper and learning that we are short of people to do the most basic jobs, uh, as well as Quite frankly, many of those requiring much more in the way of skills. As a country, I, I think uh, we've given up on our public education system. It used to be an advantage for us. We spend a lot of time bashing teachers and, and, and so forth and, and fighting about the curriculum and so forth. Um, we, we're resisting efforts to train people. We, we need the labor, but we don't want the cheap labor coming across the border, even though we don't necessarily have the labor to fill many of those jobs. And I'm going to be a little controversial in my next comment, um, and you guys can edit this out if you want, but I have long said that the country long benefited from structural inequity. If you think about the quality of teachers we had many, many years ago, when one of the best jobs available to a bright woman or a person of color uh, was as a teacher, and I use my mom as an example. She finished first in her class in college in 1942. There were no corporations or financial institutions on her campus aggressively recruiting, uh, particularly at an HBCU. And so society benefited because you had this class of individuals who were largely directed into a profession that was the best available to them. And we're you know, indebted to them, but that's changing. And without getting into the debate about teachers and quality and what have you, that's changing. And so, you know, and that's a debate for another day. But it, it goes back to my opening comment, which was that we're not spending enough time maximizing human capital. And, and I think that's a problem. And it ties back to DEI, it ties back to ESG, it ties back to a lot of things that we might talk about. So I'll pause there. I know I'm talking too long. No. Yeah. So first of all, Don, I mean, you are touching on some very, very timely issues that I mean, companies are 
exploring ways to essentially future-proof talent models that clearly we've got an inequity, as you say, of, of infrastructure and in how organizations go to recruit and build their pipeline. So when I sometimes hear the comments of there isn't there isn't a pipeline or we're not able to build a pipeline, <laughs> you know, sometimes I often think, where are you looking? And there are some, you know, organizations today that are starting to try to build bridge around skill mobility, bridges into minority serving institutions. You mentioned HBCUs, uh, but to go and to build recruitment pipelines to offer opportunities in other types of fields that may not have been historically or traditionally built into that recruitment infrastructure. So you're really touching on an important point that we probably should set up a, another conversation to unpack acutely. However, you earlier also mentioned this kind of societal shift that's a lot of pressure from company con- consumers and stakeholders and investors on companies to take more responsibility. And I like how you share your your reflection on that intentional sponsorship by this this mentor in your life. I am wondering in the area that you sit today from your vantage point, how can boards, how can corporate leaders take those first steps to dip, whether it's mentorship programs or to be more prescriptive or surgical in driving this this notion of we need to open doors, we need to find ways to design more intentional sponsorship. Are are these conversations happening within the board? Because I know, again, this is unique to your story, and I've heard other similar stories where it was that one mentor or sponsor who took them under their wing and just offered the difficult, often difficult guidance uh, to chart out the path, but how can we do more of that? Because clearly, the pressure's there to take for companies to take responsibility. But it's the how part; it's the pragmatic. What are the steps steps to activate that? What are your thoughts on that? And what are you hearing or observing, kind of from where you sit today? So, I think every boardroom where you know where I have the honor of residing. Um, the topics on the table, the topic is one of discussion and, and there's work being done and, and reporting out on the topic. So I, 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 th- I think it's on the agenda. I'm not sure from my perspective whether corporate boards today really recognize that these societal forces that we think about, how powerful those those items are for the future, that we get very caught up in a variety of other topics, which are also very, very important. And I'm sure you'll ask me about a few of those <laughs> at some point here. But I do think that and to some degree, this, this kind of gets to one of the notions that I have about the composition of boards, which is the, the notion that we actually need more people in the, in the room with you know, not only courage to ask tough questions, but also a wider lens in many instances, because I'm not sure that we're we're really necessarily seeing what's coming at us from a lot of different angles. Um, If I can go back to the comments I made about diversity and inclusion, a little bit ESG, though you didn't ask about that. I really think these are societal forces that are starting, whether we want it to or not, to drive the corporate board agenda. Um, so just a couple of thoughts. Can, can you imagine what the board discussions are Facebook and, and Facebook are, are, are like these days? Or, or if you've been following it at Netflix, um, could be a more successful company, quite frankly, than either of them. All right. I mean, Facebook was founded. My daughter is um, 36 now and she's a 
2007 graduate of college. And I remember when she was a freshman, she and all of her friends were talking about whether or not they would sign up for Facebook, which had only been started maybe two years before they were to be freshmen. And Facebook's the, you know, the bad people, you know, there's there's all kinds of negative things being said about Facebook, but just look at the, the corporate and business success or Netflix. I mean, my God, you know, how many times did I find the little red envelopes, you know, around my house that had never been returned and they talk about a success story. But what are they talking about at those boards? They're talking about all the issues that you hear on, on cable television 24-7 and Netflix. You're talking about comedian who has decided to be less than politically correct in the way he talks about things. And so that raises all kinds of challenges about speech and and, and what's appropriate. But then you know, you move from that and you've got the stodgy Exxon. My God, what could be a more, uh, there it is, Exxon. And, and you literally have activists find a way uh, with major shareholders to challenge their corporate strategy. And it's like front and center around climate and sustainability. What are you doing? And and they end up changing out board members. And, and then there's one that you may or may not have heard of, but I pay a lot of attention because of my history in the broadcast business. There's a company called Tegna, which is essentially the old Gannett uh, company's uh, television station group, which is quite a large group. And they have been under attack for three years by a very, very sophisticated activist shareholder. And his primary focus, his primary focus has been on uh, the treatment of people and particularly the treatment of people of color within the company. And it's been kind of a fascinating thing to watch. The corporate, the board has succeeded in being reelected, you know, each year, but the noise gets louder and louder. And at the current time, that activist has now joined forces with one of the major private equity firms and has made it an offer uh, to buy <laughs> the company. And so that board is, is very much under siege. And so I see these forces from society kind of demanding a seat at the table. And, and quite frankly, these are not the topics that are ever you know, in all candor on the agenda in most instances. Um, you know, you get me started on this, so I apologize. But, uh, you know, um, you think about the tensions that corporations are having to navigate uh, as between national and, and global interests. Um, you know, anybody that's doing business in China, um, uh, you know, those of us who deal with compliance and risk and what have you, you know, we spend all of our time thinking about China as a compliance issue, but you've got geopolitical stuff there. I mean, you know, like, don't go to China and start talking about your great relations in Taiwan, right? You know, and uh, they've got their views about data privacy and, and quite frankly, beyond China, just across the globe, their, their views about that. And so that's a, that's my way of saying that boards are being forced by the outside world to think about stuff, including the issues. You know, DEI is not just a, oh, we got to check that box. Okay. In my opinion, it's part and parcel of so much that's going on out there that boards are having to deal with. And of course, you know, we've got to deal with cyber. I mean, you know, cyber is going to destroy us if, you know, if we're, not, if we're not careful. Compliance and ethics is an amazingly significant issue if you 
saw yesterday that uh, the whistleblower and the LIBOR scandal, um, you know, is getting a two hundred million dollar payout. You know that that that's gonna that's gonna motivate a few people, right? Um, you know, and then I always fondly point out that, uh, and by the way, we're hopefully coming out of a pandemic and we're going to be worrying about organizational culture, given that most of us have spent two years working remotely and we got to figure out how to get back together again. So long-winded answer to your question and hopefully a little bit helpful. Yeah, no, no very helpful. And, and I'm glad you touched upon what we're sort of witnessing in terms of this this societal shift and the, you know, the increased pressure from investors, regulators, employees, you know, other stakeholders, just the demands on companies to, to show progress, business really resiliency, um, environmental, you know, climate transaction plans. And then of course we, there's, there's no question in terms of not only human capital, and I, I don't really like the phrase human capital <laughs> or natural capital sometimes is also on, on the climate stuff, but it's really our people, our talent and the innovations and the diversity of how they bring ideas to the table can really transform and create a, a certain agility to business progressing. And, and as this is continuing to sort of capture uh, the board and corporate leaders' attention. I like the phrase when you said boards really are starting to get forced to think differently. And I want to unpack that a little bit. So you touched on culture. Uh, I want to start with this notion of transforming board culture. You, know, you mentioned earlier, like having the courage on the agenda to maybe ask more difficult questions. But how can boards or, you know, you, you, you have had such a distinguished career, both as an executive and on, on, on serving uh, boards. How can boards really start to begin to transform their own culture, their own, you know, before, the, before boards can take the steps for oversight of culture within the organization, how do they turn the mirror back and reflect on themselves and take the steps to really help cultivate kind of a transformation within their own board culture? Yeah. You know, I'm probably more of a pessimist on all these things than, than many. And I don't know if that's helpful or unhelpful. But my experience has been that crisis tends to drive focus that we all get very comfortable doing what we do. We do it every every meeting, whether it's four meetings a year, or 10 meetings a year, you know, whatever the case may be. And, and then it's when all of a sudden we get something that comes in, you know, sort of a curveball that we're forced to try to get smarter. And so I, my best board experiences have been in situations where there is what I would describe as intentional diversity of voice around the table. And diversity is always thought about it from the context of gender and ethnicity and, you know, what have you. But I, and I, I think those are very much part of it, but, but I also think that diversity of voice in terms of experiences um, and, and worldview is, 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 is just so important. I have found that um, when you have that, so, so you have to start with the notion that you're not going to figure it all out, okay? That bad stuff will happen. And so you want to be prepared to react, but then, you know, you should spend time not only trying to figure out the root cause, but I, I guess, um, I think it was Andrew Grove, the, the guy who founded Intel, you know, he had a book called Only the Paranoid Survive. And, and uh, I've always found that to be, at least in my business experience, um, you know, just so true that there's a need to constantly scan the horizon, you know, looking for, for what's coming over the hill that you could just not imagine. And so I think that best boards are, are trying to find ways to empower the management teams to 
scan the horizon to, um, you know, think about risk, think about the unimaginable, think about what you do when the unimaginable happens. Um, That's, you know, I guess my my belief about it. I, I know a lot of people think that a lot of it has to do with you know, the books and records and the control <laughs> and so forth. And, and it certainly does. But, but uh, I, I will tell you that I can go back and look at scandal after scandal and crisis after crisis. And uh, you, you discover that all of that stuff that I just described, the books and records and stuff all seemed totally fine until you discovered that something else was going on that was, you know, much more difficult. And so so I, I'm a big believer in, in trying to inject a bit of um, imagination, creativity, energy, new ideas, new perspective, you know, and the boards. Um, I'm a believer in having boards that have some longevity and some experience. Um, um, I enjoyed in my long career on the Pfizer board, ultimately being the one that the new directors would turn to and say, Don, why did we do that? <laughs> okay. And there was great value to that, but it was also time for me to go. And that uh, I'm, I'm pleased to say that that one of the people that was recruited uh, in the context, not to replace me, but in the context of my leaving, Scott Gottlieb. Scott and I got to know each other in the year of overlap. And, and he's, he's, anybody who's watched television, he's a very, very bright you know, young person. And, and I, and I just think that people who come to the party with, you know, with, with different sorts of experiences, you know, can just bring so much uh, to a board. And I, and I urge boards to do that. I think some are trying harder at it. I think some are still, in my honest opinion, still checking boxes that, uh, that satisfy the New York Stock Exchange or some perceived notion of best practices and not necessarily bringing enough wisdom and, perspective uh, to the boardroom table that can hopefully help management as they try to navigate their way through increasingly difficult times. So I'm talking too long. I'm going to stop there. No, you're, you're actually spot on, Don. I mean, when you say crisis tends to, to drive focus, I mean, and clearly you're, you're drawing from, you've served on boards of, of so many highly regulated industries. You, you mentioned Pfizer, you've got pharma, you've got financial services and so forth. Tell me when there is crisis, when there are ethical lapses, what role can boards do, especially in these times with these shifts that we're discussing in society? How can they really take action to cultivate ethical culture in the organization? What are the steps they can take there? So I don't want to get too specific, but I lived through one with one of my former boards and where the company ended up making a settlement with the government and writing a very, very large check to compensate for all sorts of perceived and admitted sins. I I think that out of that, both management and the company, you know, clearly recognized that this had been an issue and that uh, we needed to figure out how to do better. But the focus, which I greatly appreciated, and, and, and I had a little bit to do with leading, though lots of others uh, were, were leading the charge, um, the focus had to do more with root cause. And, you know, how do we get there? What could we do to change? How could we make sure that the organization knew that um, that certain behavior was not not part of what that company wanted you know to convey to to the outside world so that really became a major investment of time and resources on the part of the, the, the company and with regular reporting to the right committees uh, audit and regulatory and compliance and and then ultimately to the board 
about just what was being done, not only to prevent a a repeat of what had happened, but also to, you know, what was being done to sort of make sure that within the culture, uh, everybody sort of knew what what was expected. And to be candid, uh, it was made a lot easier because the CEO was not in any way uh, either conflicted or hesitant. <laughs> very strong views on the issue and, and quite frankly, personally very embarrassed by, by what had happened. So that's what I call, what do you do afterwards? And so you deal with it. I mean, we, we, we did the usual stuff of figuring out, you know, who needed to be appropriately treated, fired, uh, you know, terminated, remediated, you know, what have you. We went, we went through all that. But I think that um, the, the bigger learning, I think, for this company, and very much into it as I was leaving the board, and I'm, and I'm very much hoping that that will continue to be, you know, the case, was was really what I would describe as so let's let's scan the horizon let's let's figure out let's figure out um, how to identify the next issues and see if we can get ahead ahead of it and I mean they they literally formed a I guess I don't hate to call, you call it a committee but I guess it was a committee that you know on a, on a regular basis uh, was was effectively reviewing uh, within this particular part of the, their business sales practices um, and new developments, et cetera, and, and looking at where there might be issues. Um, my uh, contribution, which I think they followed, was was to find the person in their organization that nobody tended to like, <laughs> who was not afraid to say, but, <laughs> sounds good, but, and to empower them to find ways to reward the person for for bringing you know a, an independent and a challenging viewpoint. Um, that's hard in organizations. I don't know how well they did with that. I think they they did some of it, but but the point is is that you're trying to to be ahead of it. You're trying to to recognize that uh, bad stuff happens. Um, that you can you can talk to the cows or come home, but bad stuff happens and it will happen. And people, for either evil reasons or innocent reasons, sometimes go over the line, go go where they shouldn't go. Uh, you just have to recognize that's that that's going to be the case from a board perspective. I always took the position you have to recognize that. Uh, you have to make sure managers know that bad news can be delivered safely, um, that you're not going to all of a sudden, you know, have the hanging party go out, you know, because, you know, someone came in and, and, and told the audit committee that there had been an issue, but but that what you really wanted was, so how do we find this out? What are we doing about it? What do we think the causes were? What can we do better? I mean, you go through the checklist. So again, not sure if I'm responding to your your question, but, but I, I do think that boards are having to organize themselves around these challenges. And there are, in my opinion, there are no right answers. There's no exact answer to any of it, uh, which is why I always argue that you got to talk about it a lot. You got to recognize that sometimes the agenda that's laid out isn't necessarily the agenda that you really need to be focusing on and at least have some discussion about that so that the person who might have a different idea can feel empowered to bring that idea up. Anyway, I'm going to stop there. You're hitting really excellent points. I feel like I could, we could continue this for a, a good another hour because culture in and of itself, it is, it's so elusive. And and to your point, there's there's the agenda, and then there's the fuzzy noise. And how do we sort of extract that clear focus? And while so glad you said this, bad stuff happens, it'll continue to happen, and crisis 
continues to unfold. However, I think it's how do organizations take a step back and try to, you know, see what are the lessons that we can learn? How can we be a little bit more acutely aware to try to identify these signals early? And how do we really foster a culture where management is also comfortable coming in and escalating or or bringing these to our attention sooner? Or what are the challenging questions we can ask of management to try to uncover these issues sooner? So it's sort of a, a mutual dialogue here. But clearly, Don, this is a conversation we could probably continue to have. Uh, but we're we're reaching kind of the end of our time. And uh, I have learned so much from you. I feel like I was intentionally sponsored today. So, so many new ideas are, are sparked in my head. So thank you so much for sharing your time and for joining us on this episode today. And I want to say to our listeners, this was a real special treat. We're just so thrilled to have Don share his reflections and experiences here. And I'm Marsha Shaggy Hames uh, with gratitude for tuning in to the principal podcast from LRN. And I'm going to sign off. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode. The principal podcast is brought to you by LRN. At LRN, our mission is to inspire principled performance in global organizations by helping them foster winning ethical cultures rooted in sustainable values. Please visit us at LRN.com to learn more. And if you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And don't forget to leave us a review.